Exodus chapter 7, and we're starting at verse 1, and we're reading through to verse 5. Exodus 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. And the second reading is over the page, and we're in chapter 9. And we're starting at verse 13, with the little subtitle, The Plague of Hail. So it's verse 13, chapter 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people. So you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every man and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field, and they will die. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards the sky, so that hail will fall all over Egypt, on men and animals and on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff towards the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both men and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen where the Israelites were. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Moses replied, When I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord God. The flax and barley were destroyed, since the barley was in the ear and the flax was in, the, was in bloom. The wheat and spelt, however, were not destroyed because they ripened later. Then Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city. He spread out his hands towards the Lord, 
the thunder and hail stopped, and the rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. This is God's word. Evening, everybody. Uh, Do keep your Bibles open. You need your fingers warm. We're going to be flicking all through those chapters. Don't worry, we're not going to do the whole of 7 to 11. Um, I promise you'll be home before midnight. I like to make promises I can keep. Let's pray. Father God, these are uh, difficult and troubling words, if we're honest, and we don't altogether like passages like this. And so, our dear God and Father, we pray that you would uh, give us humble and teachable hearts. We pray that we would not judge your word, but that we would learn from you. And we ask this, that we might have a true knowledge of who you are. Amen. That the issue that's at the, the heart of this passage, of chapter 7 to 11, is not actually a religious issue at all. It's a universal human issue. The question being addressed is very simply this. What is ultimate in this universe? What is the ultimate reality behind this universe? Now, as many as you've got uh, human cultures, you've got different answers to that from Allah to karma. And in 21st century London, I guess that the answer that is prevalent amongst us for for what is ultimate in this universe is that we would say, um, it's put most eloquently these days by Professor Brian Cox, we would say that it is uh, the scientific processes tell us everything there is to be known about this universe. That when you combine time with chance and scientific processes, you can explain everything. In other words, the ultimate reality behind this universe is the observable rules of science. That's, that's it. There's no great God behind us. Now that's the philosophical idea which is, which is dominant amongst those who have things like worldviews for, what does that mean though day to day? Uh, when people aren't having din- dinner parties in Islington discussing worldviews, what it means day to day is I can do what I want. There is no great God. And therefore actually we, we don't live as if there's no God, we live as if I'm God. Each of us lives as if I have the right to determine how I live, how I spend my time, my money, how I use my body. It's up to me to decide what's right and what's wrong. And I'm answerable only to me. And the ultimate ethic is be true to yourself. We act like we are ultimate in this universe because we say there is no God. It's just the way we are. And here in chapter 7 to 11 of Exodus, the God of the Bible says... No, 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 no. I am God. And I rule everything and I rule everyone. But he does more than say it in these chapters. He's been saying it for an awful long time in Exodus by this point. Here he does stuff. Here he does stuff that shows that he alone, out of all the gods, all the ideologies, all the religions of the world, there is one big G God, and that is the God of the Bible. That's, a, that's if you like, the, the main message, the point of these chapters is that, the revelation that God is the one true God. But it's not the issue that's in our minds as we heard these chapters being read. It's, 
It's impossible for a group like us in 21st century London not to have a distinct sense of unease as we look at these chapters together. It's just, they're not very attractive, are they? God's smiting people. You're all too young, but thankfully I'm too young as well to remember Clint Eastwood's Westerns when they first came out. Um, But I've seen Pale Rider, probably the best Western of the lot. And in Pale Rider, Clint Eastwood, rather bizarrely, is a preacher. Okay, fair enough. And he goes around doing good in the Wild West until he comes to this town that's being terrorized. And he is confronted by, uh, by a really nasty set of people. And so he rides back to this bank where he has a safety deposit box and he takes off his dog collar, puts it in and he takes out his pistols. And he turns from being the kind, gentle preacher to a cold-hearted killer who takes vengeance, brutal, total vengeance on all those who stand against him. And from now on, there is no grace and there is no love in him until the end of the movie. And it kind of feels like that's what happens, as if God has said, right, the dog collar's coming off and the boxing gloves are going on. And you just think, I don't really like the sound of that God. It just sounds all very un-Jesus-like, this of smiting with plagues. And what are you supposed to do with that? And there's a, a whole lot of chapters in the Bible. Why would we make time to study chapters like these? that say nothing about Jesus, you know, what on earth could they have to tell you about your desire to know more about God? What relevance could they have? As it happens, an enormous amount. You see, this isn't God on a bad day. This isn't God when he's tired and angry and irritable. Remarkably, the Bible tells us that these chapters are central to understanding who God is. It all starts, actually, with, um, if you turn back a couple of pages to page 61, the very bottom right corner of page 61, and Pharaoh's arrogant dismissal of God. So, chapter 5, the, the chapters are just the big numbers, uh, verse 2, verses just mean uh, the little numbers in the Bible. And chapter 5, verse 2, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Turn forward. A page to chapter 7, verse 5. And this is what God says at the start of the plagues. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out. And then he says the same things if you look in 7.17, in 8.10, in 8.22, in 9.14, in 9.16, in 9.29, and in 10, verse 2. God says about the plagues... When this happens, then you will know that I am the Lord. In other words, these reveal my character. If you want to know what God is like, look at these chapters. And for the rest of the Old Testament, you ask an Israelite, what's your God like, the the God of Israel? What is he like? And they would say, well, he's the God of the Exodus, the God who brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. First song we sang tonight, Psalm 136. This is who our God is. He is the God of the Exodus. When they arrive at Sinai, Exodus 20, verse 2, the Lord reveals himself as, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. That is who God is. In other words, you cannot escape these chapters if you want to know who the God of the Bible is. They are central to who he says he is. So what do they reveal about God? What, uh, what do we learn about God if we look at these, these chapters together? 
Well, two big things, basically. Uh, in one sense, they might think they're not that profound. But he is God and he is good. That's what we learn. And they are marvelous lessons to learn. Okay, firstly, he is God. Why is it that there are nine plagues and then this final plague of death? And what is going on? Some people argue that uh, the, the plagues are addressing all the different gods of Egypt, showing his mastery over each of them. The problem with that is, um, if you go to reliable sources like Wikipedia, um, there's a, or any other thing, you'll find that there are loads more gods than that in e- ancient Egypt, 18 or so. Um, and the Bible just doesn't make anything of that. You have to read stuff into the Bible if you think that. Well, others look at it and say, well, it's like some great boxing match. You've got two evenly matched fighters slugging it out, and it takes ten rounds before finally Pharaoh goes down. God has to punch him ten times before Pharaoh hits the canvas. But again, that just won't do. Because this is what God has always said. We saw that in the first reading. Turn back to chapter 7. So chapter 7, page 63. Seven, uh, three. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt with mighty acts of judgment. Uh, don't worry about the God hardening Pharaoh's heart thing. If you weren't here last week, listen to the the sermon, and um, we addressed that last week. Um, but do you see that God says Pharaoh is not going to let the people go? God always said he would have to bring a whole cycle of judgment upon the Egyptians, upon Pharaoh. It was no surprise. It becomes even clearer in the in the passage we looked at already, nine, chapter 9, which PJ read for us. Look at um, page 66. 9.13, Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so that you may know there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the face of the earth. But I raised you up for this very purpose that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God does it, and he does it this way, to reveal himself. So what do we learn? Well, um, when you study the text, you see that there's no mention of the other Egyptian gods, and there's no sense that God is just, oh, gosh, I hit him and he didn't go down. I hit him harder and he still doesn't go down. Instead, you'll see that there's a careful structure and pattern. There are three sets of three plagues, and then the final plague of death. So the first three are all enacted by Aaron with his rod. The second set of three are enacted by God, Yahweh, himself. And the third set of three are all enacted by Moses. And in each set of three, for the first one, God says, go to Pharaoh early in the morning. The second one, God says, go into Pharaoh. And the third one, there's no warning at all. God just does it. And then you've got the final plague of death. God reveals his sovereign matchless might slowly through this cycle of plagues. So the first cycle, you've got uh, water, blood, well, water into blood, frogs and gnats. What is going on there? Why, why does it happen like that? Well, the point is that God is showing slowly his superiority over the sorcerers, the gods, if you like, of Egypt. Uh, so in 722 and 87, you see very interesting things. Flick back, 722 and 87. Um, 
which is page 64. So top of the right-hand column on page 64, chapter 7, verse 22. So through Aaron striking the Nile, the whole Nile has been turned to blood. But, verse 22, the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. Likewise, 8-7 at the bottom of that column. Uh, so they make frogs come up over all the land, but the magicians did the same thing by their secret arts, and they also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. It's actually quite comedy when you think about it. Um, <laughs> you know, there's a there's Pharaoh. There's the whole of the Nile has been turned to blood. Uh, absolute chaos in Egypt. And people having to dig around in the ground to try and get drinking water. And his magicians come and say, "Don't worry, Pharaoh. Look what we've managed to do." We've managed to take some of the water that's still left in Egypt and turn that to blood too. <laughs> Great. You know, Pharaoh's up treading on frogs everywhere. Don't worry, Pharaoh. Look what we've managed to do. We've made more frogs. <laughs> well, thank you for that. You know, it's just, it's deliberately comedy. It's mocking them. They may be just about keeping up with God, but they're not doing much that's useful. And very interestingly, What happens next, they cannot keep up with. So the third plague, the gnats, they have no answer for. Look at uh, chapter 8 and verse 18. And look at what they say as they fail, as they speak the truth of God to Pharaoh. Page 65. But the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts. They could not. And the gnats were on men and animals. The magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. In other words, the whole point of the first cycle, the first three plagues, is to demonstrate this God, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, is above the gods you know about. Your gods in Egypt are not on the same level as this God. He is above them. He is greater. He is mightier. Then in the second cycle, with the uh, you've got flies, dead livestock, and boils. The point here seems to be the distinction that God makes between Israel and Egypt. So God keeps the land of Goshen free of the of these afflictions. So we saw that in 9 and verse 26 on page 66, bottom right corner of page 66. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. The point here is God is showing his control. He's showing his control. It's not as if he's unleashed these terrifying forces and he's, oh my goodness, everything's gone out of control. I don't know what I'm doing. And he's in control because he is personally involved in everything that happens in his universe. He doesn't run the world on cruise control. This God is intimately involved. And so he's able to say, it'll happen there and it will not happen there. This is not an absent great God. This is a present great God who is intimately involved in the twitching of every atom in his universe. Then the third cycle of the hail, locusts, and darkness. I think this is all about the incomparable greatness of God, a God far above anything anyone has heard of. In 918, you'll see it says that the, the hail storm will be the worst ever recorded in Egypt. Go on YouTube later, and you'll see that you can watch in the Midwestern America hail storms where the hail comes down the size of golf balls and even the size of baseballs at times. So when he says the worst ever recorded in history, you hate to think. What God has done. The same point is made by the locusts in 10.6. This will be an unlike anything you've seen or heard of event. And then most chillingly of all in 10.21, Moses stretches out his hand at God's command and a great pall of darkness descends 
over all of Egypt for three days. Well, we get three months of it here. It's called winter. It's not that bad, is it? <laughs> yeah, this is a little different. It says that you couldn't see your face. You couldn't see anybody. No one could even move about because it was utter, complete, pitch black darkness. It's described horribly in chapter 10 as a darkness that could be felt. It was so oppressive. Now the sun, um, let me tell you about it because you haven't seen it for so long. You may have forgotten. Um, You'll see it again in a few months' time, fear not. It is an extraordinary thing, the sun. It is 865,000 miles around compared to our 24,000 miles for the earth. At its core, it is 27 million degrees hot. The crust, the outer part of the sun, is a whole lot cooler. It's only 10 million degrees. (laughs) Um, I don't know whether that's Fahrenheit or centigrade, but frankly, it's 10 million degrees. Who cares? (laughs) It's flipping hot. And the sun produces so much energy through the sunlight that um, reaches the earth um, all those million miles away. It produces so much energy that the earth receives from the sun in one hour more energy than the seven billion humans on this planet use or create in an entire year. It's an extraordinarily powerful object, the sun. And God turns it off like he's flicking a switch in the bathroom. Off for Egypt, on for Goshen. This is a God unlike anything anyone has seen. And all these things happen, we're told again and again and again and again, just as the Lord had said through Moses. That's what we're learning in these chapters. It has been a cosmic battle between the God of the Bible and Pharaoh of Egypt. And it is clear by the end of chapter 10 that although the Egyptians have gods, they've got Ra and Osiris and all those other gods I'm sure we learn about at school. When Moses tells Pharaoh about the Lord God, he means something very, very different indeed. As the Lord puts it in 9.14, the very reason for striking Egypt with plagues was so that they would know there is no one like me in all the earth. In other words, what God wants the Egyptians to do is not to clear a bit of space in their temple and make a statue for the God of the Bible, one more God in the temple. He wants them to trash the temple and to turn away and fall on their knees and recognize if we call them gods, this is not a God. If we call him God, they are certainly not gods. He is, he's a different category, a different order of being. He is the only capital G God in the universe. God is making himself known to Israel, to Pharaoh, to Egypt, to all the earth, 914 puts it. See, God is after more than just Israel. He doesn't want just a few people from one tribe to know him. He wants the world to be set free from our ignorance and fear, to turn away from the deception of of the gods of Egypt and to know the truth about the God who created the world, who rules, who reigns, who controls, who governs. To turn away from uh, the corruption of sin that's leading them to death and darkness. And instead to come to know the truth about God. But the truth about God is that he is a God who's involved, that he's mighty, and that he is just. And therefore they learn the truth about God in the plagues. See, we don't just learn God is mighty here. We also learn he is good. We learn he is good. 
Now that might seem counterintuitive to us as we read about plagues and people being smite, smite, smote, smote with hailstones and that sort of thing. But you see, we need to understand this is the only way that God can rescue his people. And the only reason that God is going to strike Egypt with the plagues, he'll strike Pharaoh with the sword because Pharaoh will not listen to the word. If Pharaoh had listened to the word, he would not face the sword. So God says in uh, halfway through chapter 9, chapter nine seventeen, you still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt. Or to put it in street language, what God is saying, sometimes the good guy's got to punch the bad guy to stop the bad guy beating on and abusing innocent victims. Any Canadians in the house tonight? Shame. I like Canadians. I like people of all races. I'm into embracism, not racism. That's me. Um, but I particularly have a fond spot in my heart for Canadians. You see, I have a, a friend who used to come here who was a Canadian. We called him the bear. And he was just, he was just your archetypal, big, strong, noble Canadian. Step into any situation. And I got a real insight into what life is like in Canada. He grew up in rural Alberta. I asked him if he played ice hockey. He said, Phil, growing up in Canada, you have two choices. You play ice hockey or you get beat up. And when you play ice hockey, you get beat up. <laughs> it just explains so much about Canadians. And about the time he was here at church, um, there was an incident on the, uh, on the London Underground. Uh, there was a, a couple of uh, likely lads showing how incredibly hard they were by smoking on the tube. And uh, commuters did their thing. Can't see anything, no eye contact. Little old lady stood up and told them off. And so they decided to show how incredibly hard they were by um, teaching this little old lady a lesson. What they didn't notice as they got up and uh, and sort of started to harass her as the tube doors opened. And on stepped a man called Norm Hadley. Now at the time, Norm Hadley was the captain of the Canadian rugby team. Now, uh, for those for whom statistics matter, he was six foot eight and 20 stone. Statistics mean nothing to you. He was about the size of that organ, basically. (laughs) And Norm Hadley got onto the tube and assessed the situation quickly and acted accordingly. He walked up behind these two lads and grabbed them both by the collar and lifted them both into the air and bashed their heads together and dropped them on the floor of the tube carriage. And I think, great. Great. Good for you. You see, sometimes when bad guys are beating up innocent old ladies, good guys need to bash the bad guys' heads together. God is not a thug or a bully in these chapters. Pharaoh is the thug and the bully. The pharaohs of Egypt have slaughtered baby boys and are working the entire nation to death as their slaves. And God starts very gently with the plagues, just turning a river to blood, sending frogs everywhere. Annoying, but hardly devastating. But God has to act, because God is good. See, this isn't just a Israel's God's people, and so he's having an arm wrestle because Pharaoh wants Israel, and you know, it's a, like two men fighting for a girl. It's nothing like that. This is justice. Pharaoh is wicked, and God is acting to punish a wrongdoer. And we lose sight of this. We forget how wicked sin is, how appalling it is. We forget that if God is going to be holy and good, he has to punish wickedness. 
You see, actually, you lose the right to call yourself good if you don't act in the face of evil. And here's the thing. When society is nice and safe and everybody's prosperous, good people are not known for being violent. Good people are not known for judging when society is nice. But when society is chaotic and evil, if you want to be known as good and you've got the power to do something, then you have to do something. I was reading um, a biography uh, this last week of a Christian, a Christian pastor. It's a slightly unique biography. It can't be slightly unique. It's a unique biography. I've never read another Christian biography where the central character is involved in a plot to kill somebody as a Christian. How does that work? His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he is a wonderful, wonderful young pastor preached the gospel faithfully, helped some of the poorest people in his country, Germany, to come to know the Lord Jesus and and looked after them materially. He was a brilliant pastor of people, faithful Bible teacher, wonderful, wonderful man, real leader of men. But then things changed in Germany and a man named Adolf Hitler took power. And because Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a good man, he had to oppose Hitler. And eventually, when Hitler started carting Jews off to murder them, when Hitler closed down all the care centers for disabled people and had them euthanized, Bonhoeffer were helped out with a plot to have Hitler killed. And he was murdered by the Gestapo for it. You see, judgment and punishment are what good looks like when it's faced by evil. You can't smile at evil and call yourself good. I don't know if you've read anything in the news, uh, some of the reports from the, the girls in Nigeria who were kidnapped by Boko Haram. Some of them have escaped, and so we're we're starting to get a picture of just the casual horror of the camp. They're just, well, we've got you. And it was just normal days of gang rape and brutal beatings just because they could. Now, a God who looks on that and smiles and says, I just love everybody. I could never judge anybody. He stops having the right to call himself good. Anybody who can look on that and say, can't call themselves good. Judgment and punishment are what good look like when it comes up against evil. And that's what's happening here. Amazingly, amazingly, it's no more than Pharaoh deserves and he realizes it. At the end of chapter uh, 9, we read in verse 27, right at the bottom of page 66, Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. Extraordinary. The Lord is in the right. I've sinned. God is doing what's right. If he doesn't do this, God would be wrong. 
Because God is good, he punishes Pharaoh. We learn here of the greatness of God, but we also learn of the goodness of God. What do we do with a passage like this? What's the take home for you and me? Well, the first is don't be Pharaoh. Now, I know a number of people here and looking out, I don't see too many people who I think are likely to slaughter baby boys and enslave nations for their own whim. I can't see too many of you look like you'd do that of a Monday morning. (laughs) But that's not really what I mean. Why is it Pharaoh does that? He does that because Pharaoh doesn't know God and Pharaoh thinks Pharaoh can do what Pharaoh likes. That's Pharaoh's fundamental problem. And in that sense, you and I do need to be careful that we don't do a Pharaoh. We mustn't act like we can ignore this God, that he's no big deal, that functionally I'm in charge. And in this, we really are all like little Pharaohs. Even those of us who call ourselves Christians, we sing, uh, God reigns, you are king, we pray to God, and then Monday comes round, and I just find it's a whole lot easier to do what I want to do. Big decision comes, and I don't like the thought of allowing God a say in it. I want to do what I want to do. Why Why should I have to see what the Bible says? Why should I have to listen to what my Christian friends say? I. This is my decision. We act like Pharaoh. We act as if there is no God and I can do what I want. But these chapters are a very blunt warning to you and me. Don't play games with God. Don't think you can ignore him. Don't act like you're answerable only to you. There is a God, he is great and mighty, and he is the judge of all the world. The great news is that if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven and that God, that judge is your father. But you and I, even if we trust in Jesus, will still stand before the judge and give an account for our lives. So don't play games with him. Don't act as if he has no functional impact on the way you live. This is the great God of Exodus. This passage is very serious. It's a very undeniably serious passage, but it is wonderful because it tells us that what what is ultimate in this universe is not a what, it's a who, and that who is God and he is good. And that is very, very good news. It means when you watch the news, and you know that feeling of absolute helplessness you have as you watch brutal wickedness going on in some faraway place and there's nothing you can do. And you know because there's no oil there that no one's going to do anything about it and people are just dying and, well, that's what happens. God sees and one day God will judge. And that is great news for those suffering injustice in this world. And we shouldn't be embarrassed about what we read here. Those of us who call ourselves Christians are sometimes embarrassed by the judgment of God. Don't be embarrassed about a God who judges wickedness. And nor should we think that somehow things get different in the New Testament. Actually, it's a wonderful thing to read that when Jesus is confronted by injustice and evil, he gets angry. When people in the temple turn it into a market stall and keep hungry, spiritually thirsty people away from God, Jesus gets angry and he throws tables around and drives people out. In some of the most chilling verses in the Bible, in Revelation 14.10, we read at the end of time that eternal punishment, when it happens, happens in the presence of the Lamb. What we learn here about God is true of Jesus. 
and is wonderfully true of Jesus. It is central to who God is and it is good news that we worship a God who is committed to being good. And his goodness for for those who turn to him looks like extraordinary generosity and kindness. And his goodness to those who do wicked, evil things looks like terrifying judgment. And you know what? This is good news for the world. I was uh, I was talking to a guy last year at a church who used to go out on his Saturdays um, into his local town to tell people about Jesus. He'd just get into conversations on the main shopping street. And he told me that uh, he'd been chatting to a, uh, to a guy, and as soon as the guy realized he was a Christian, he said, look, I have no interest in your gentle Jesus, meek and mild. I spent years in the army, and I've seen things you don't even want to think about. And I have no interest in a God like that. And he said, so I told him, I said, oh, well, the God of the Bible is a judge. And he sees everything, and one day he will bring real judgment on every evildoer. And the guy said, oh, that's a God I want to know about. See, in a world like ours, we need a God like that. But when we talk about the God who's a judge, and now I want to talk to those of us who are Christians, when we talk about a God who who judges, you and I need to be humble. Because the simple truth is that every single one of us here, no matter how long you've been following Jesus, you and I, we also contribute to the suffering in this world. And you and I deserve the judgment of God. And therefore, we should be very humble as we talk about how good it is that God will judge. But it is good. It is good not to feel hopeless and helpless in the face of the frightening evil in our world, but to say, I can do nothing, but there is a God who one day will bring serious, full judgment on all evil. It is a great comfort that one day God will overthrow every tyrant and punish all wickedness. That one day God will say to the warring nations, be still and know that I am God and they will be still. And it will be peace for all eternity. But there is actually better news even than that. As good as it is to know a God who judges, there is better news. You see, Exodus 10 is not the last time in history that the skies of the world turned unnaturally black in God's judgment. Because another day, 1,500 years later, outside Jerusalem, the sky turned dark in the middle of the day. And again, God's wrathful judgment was being poured out, but this time it wasn't on wicked Pharaoh. It was on his perfect son, Jesus Christ, hanging on a cross. And the wonderful news of that dark day was that God became the man, Jesus Christ, and suffered the full plagues of God's judgment so that you and I would not have to. So that if we trust in Jesus, we might be free. And because he died on the cross in our place, we can be rescued like Israel rather than punished like Pharaoh. And we can know God the judge as God my father. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for these chapters. We're sorry for how often we try to airbrush you. How often we wince and feel embarrassed by the things you say and do. Father, give us the humility to recognize you are God, we are not, and you are good. And our Father, we thank you that 
you are good in your judgment as well in your as well as in your salvation and father we do thank you most of all that because of the lord jesus we who also deserve your judgment can know you not as judge but as our father amen